One snowy, stormy Christmas Eve, the perfect couple was driving their perfect car along a winding road. They noticed someone in distress at the side of the road. Being the perfect couple, they stopped to help. Lo and behold, there stood Santa Claus with a huge bundle of toys. Not wanting to disappoint any children, on the eve of Christmas, the perfect couple loaded Santa and his toys into their perfect vehicle, and soon they were driving along, delivering the toys. Unfortunately, the driving conditions deteriorated, and the perfect couple and Santa Claus had an awful accident, and only one of them survived the accident. Who was the survivor? Well, the perfect woman, of course. After all, she's the only one who really existed in the first place. Everyone knows there's no such thing as Santa Claus and certainly no such thing as a perfect man. Now, I could stop right there, but there's another part of the joke, so I'm going to keep on going. So if there's no perfect man and no Santa Claus, the perfect woman must have been driving, which explains why there was a car accident in the first place. (laughs) All right. Now, on that spiritual note, let's uh, open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And we have as our purpose for the next several months to tour through this marvelous book. Chapter 1, verse 19 gives us the outline. It's the outline we're going to follow. Uh, Chapter 1 dealt with the things that he saw, which is that first vision of Christ. Chapter 2 and 3, the things which are, which are church age things, which are what we're studying now. And chapter 4 through 22, the things that shall be hereafter. And we're going to break the book down that way. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. All begins with Christ being revealed to us in the church age. Remember, that is what the book of Revelation's title really is. It's the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus, uh, knowing things about Christ we would never know apart from this book. My object in our lesson is to study this book perhaps like you would, as you would open your book and read through and kind of use some of the things that we've talked about in our how to get the most out of your time in the word study. And so... We're going to start doing that as well as we work our way through and probably take in some of those things. I hope you are able to connect with them. But Christ is moving among the churches. He's revealed in the church age. He's ministering to the church. And uh, we saw the church at Ephesus last time, and uh, Ephesus-type church. And we saw that these were real churches in real locations, and they also are uh, types of churches that are continuing to exist all through the present age. We have these kinds of churches they represent churches still today, because we're still in the church age. We saw that church that had the right doctrine, but Christ told them that they had lost their first love, a passionate love for Christ, and all the other things that they did, which were all great things, that they couldn't bear evil people, they couldn't uh, bear false prophets and false teachers, that they endured, and they were faithful to sound doctrine. All those things did not balance out the scale for losing their first love. didn't replace the most important thing, in the church, which is their passionate love for Christ. We saw in verse 8 of chapter 2, we looked at the second church, the church at Smyrna. We saw that nothing negative at all is said about this church because it's a church under what? Do you remember? It's under persecution. And a persecuted church is going to be a pure church. Why is that? Well, it's because as soon as a little pressure comes to bear, as soon as you have to answer for your faith, as soon as you may lose your life, your job, your your, uh, whatever for your faith, people who are not really... Uh, convinced that this is the right thing, they're out of there, aren't they? They're not going to stick around and lose something that they value more uh, for being associated with the church. And so there's no negative thing said about this church. Now, the next letter is going to be the church in the city of Pergamum. And I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation 2. We're going to pick up in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. 
I want to read all the way to verse 29, then we're going to come back and we'll go verse by verse then through it. So start at verse 12, all the way through verse 29. You read in your copy of God's Word. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the day of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Verse 15. So you also have some who are in the same way hold hold to the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly and I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Look at verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold... I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, What you have, hold fast until I come. Verse 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Verse 29. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this third letter... It's the letter to the church in the city of Pergamum. What kind of city is this city? And if you don't have notes and you need them, just lift up your hand real quick and you can have them put in your hand. Uh, You can start filling these in right now. This is a modern city of Bergama. All right? Modern city of Bergama. Site of the first temple of Caesar built to Augustus in 29 B.C. Later, a second one was built to Trajan. And, you know, we live in in quite a time ourselves, don't we? And we we know that at the end of... uh, of this road as we head down Greenview and cross over, uh, that there is a, a Muslim temple there. Uh, and we know that there's lots of things that are going on around here, but we, um, we don't live where there's a temple built to worship President Barack Obama. All right? And uh, so you can see that although we live in difficult times, churches have lived in difficult times before, much more difficult, right? And here there's two. Uh, and uh, the worship of Asclepios and Zeus were widespread here. Um, Sacrifices were burned at the altar of Zeus 24 hours a day. So at all times, you'd be able to smell and see and hear uh, all that was going on to the worship of Zeus. 
Zeus was equivalent to the Roman god Jupiter, associated with various other deities, such as Egyptian Ammon. And uh, what's interesting about this, as I was reading about Asclepios, that worship, that uh, was represented by a serpent, Asclepios was. And uh, the worshippers called that serpent Savior, believe it or not. That's the word they used of this serpent. And whom do we refer when we think of a serpent? <laughs> right. It's kind of the opposite, right? And I thought that was interesting to note. And uh, we'll kind of tie that out all together here in just a minute. But uh, the serpent was a symbol for the god of healing for them. Uh, a serpent on a pole still used in the medical field now for us. As we think about uh, that, the sanctuary of Asclepios was also known as Asclepion. And uh, in this place, people with health problems could bathe in water and then they would, uh, of the sacred spring that was there, and then the patient then would dream, Asclepios would appear in a vision to tell them how to be healed. That's very interesting, isn't it? That they would ask to be some, somehow in a, in a vision or a dream, they'd want to meet with Asclepios so he could tell them how they could be healed. Very demonic in every, every part of its aspect. Archaeology there has found uh, lots of gifts and dedications that people would make afterwards, such as small terracotta body parts, which they assume would be the parts of the body that they would like Asclepios to heal. Uh, sometimes we've noted different places where they would lie on the floor and let snakes crawl over them uh, in, in hopes that they, the snakes would impart some healing uh, to them. And so a bunch of uh, very interesting things in the, uh, that would go on there. But uh, what are cult worshippers really worshipping? This is just a review when they worship a false god. Remember, according to Scripture, who are they really worshipping? They worship Satan and they're worshipping demons, right? Scripture is very clear about that. You worship a false god, you make a sacrifice to a false god, you're actually making a sacrifice to a demon. And so it's not surprising then to us to see some, some similar false deities spring up in cultures, is it? Because demons love that worship, I don't doubt. Uh, they love the attention that they get. They love the little bit of freedom that they have from the Lord at this time period to do a little bit of thing to keep people coming back and worshiping a false god. And so it's not surprising then that we see Zeus worshipped later as, as uh, Jupiter and then uh, you know Ammon was associated with that as well. So there's lots of uh, just changing with these demons that have been there and it particularly been in the Middle East. You just kind of think, well, they've been used to being worshipped a long time, haven't they? And there's some ones who still there that are in power who have been in power there a long time and been people, kept people under um, their authority. But Pergamum was a very wealthy city. Uh, parchment was invented there, uh, writing surface made by animal skin, uh, made with animal skin. Now, look back at verse 12, if you would, and let's just kind of go through verse by verse. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now, who is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword? Who are we talking about? It's Jesus. Just remember, every time there's a message, it's coming from Christ. He ministers in the church. He takes a look at the church. He's walking there. He's trimming the lamps. He's doing all these things. And then he makes the evaluation and draws out some things that are there and uh, how to correct them. I know where you dwell, verse 13 says, where Satan's throne is. Uh, not only the symbol, of course, a serpent, but also intense temptation. Uh, and it's informative to know, I think, too, and comforting, that Jesus always knows where the base of operation for Satan is at any time certain point in time in history. Isn't that great? He knows exactly where there's uh, major things going on, where Satan is very involved. And uh, he mentions that. He understands that the church is in a place that's very difficult. And uh, there is a corresponding church, of course, today, which operates where Satan is very active. And it says, verse 13, You hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was... Killed, and that is the word martyred. That's a transliteration of the Greek word meaning to witness. 
And so here this guy Antipas, likely the pastor there, tradition says that he was put to death in 92 AD by being burned inside a brass bowl. That was a common way to execute someone at that time. They'd put him inside a brass bowl, close the top, build a fire underneath, and that would be the end of you. And so this pastor of this church was put to death for his witness. It's, it came to mean witness through death. And that's where we get our word martyr, a transliteration of the Greek word just meaning to witness, and it eventually began to mean witness through death. And it says, I know that you have been faithful, even the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, uh, who was martyred or killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus knows where Satan's active, where the active front is, uh, associated with a Gentile base, no doubt, of false religion and uh, doctrines of demons. Verse 14, now look there if you would. But I have a few things against you. you know, he always names some of the good things, some things that are going on here that are positive. He understands the difficult time that they're in. And then he points out some things that need to be changed, that need to be brought to our attention. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of God to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now, as you're, as you're looking at that passage, you're going to think back, aren't you? And you're going to think back to Numbers chapter 25, which is where we get the story uh, of Balaam and uh, the religion of Balak, right? And so that's what you would do, and that's what I would do. You would turn back there and just kind of refresh yourself because... Christ points out that in this church, there are some who are still teaching that thing. And what, what that is, is basically immorality, adultery, worship through temple prostitutes, that kind of thing is still going on. People are attending the church who are also participating in those things. Okay, and Jesus knows this. And like we talked about this morning, not everyone knows everything that goes on in everyone else's life, right? And uh, it's easy to put up a front and pretend to be one thing when you're actually not. But Jesus, we don't ever fool Christ. And he just says to the church, listen, there are some who do this. There are some of this is going on in your church. Some of the folks are there. All right. And uh, it's interesting to note, too, just as a cross reference, you can jot this down. Acts 15, 19. In fact, you can turn there if you want. Just hold your hand right here where you are. Acts 15, 19. Peter is talking to the council at Jerusalem. And remember, uh, there at that part of Acts, we're talking a lot about Gentiles coming to faith. And when Gentiles are coming to faith, uh, you know, the Jews had their own difficulties, their own self-righteousness, their own uh, kind of a net, what they thought was a national salvation because of their connection to Abraham and their circumcision and all this stuff. Gentiles had problems as well, and so they had to deal with these different kinds of problems. So you have people coming to faith, and they have in their lives these types of worship uh, experiences. They know uh, only one way to worship, right? And that's uh, to a pagan deity who has instructed them to have immorality and, uh, as part of their worship, and uh, Christ, of course, knows that this is part of the people who are in the church are like this. But in Acts 15, verse 19, Peter's talking to the council at Jerusalem. Listen to the language here. I love this. Uh, and it kind of gives us, really illustrates for us what, you know, Peter was concerned about as well uh, in, with the Gentiles coming to faith. He says this kind of in summary. You can read the whole thing on your own. We don't have time to do it tonight. But it says, therefore, it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. In other words, let's not make them keep all the law and all this stuff. And remember that struggle, right? Make them be circumcised. All the things that produce no effect for the Jew anyway. We're not going to lay all that burden on the Gentile. And he just says this, verse 20, listen. But that we write to them that they, what? Abstain from things contaminated by idols. See, that was what they were used to, right? That's what they were coming out of. That's the kind of religion that they had. Uh, they would sacrifice to an idol. They would eat those things, right? Abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. 
okay? And so just in a, you just got a little cross-section if you want to kind of see what's in the mind of people who perhaps are in the types of pagan cults that would have been in this church that we're looking at today and certainly would have been representative of the Gentile group at that time when they're coming to faith, churches early on in its ministry, uh, you get this idea that this is, what they're, this is the way they're used to worshiping. And Peter says, listen, let's not lay this whole burden of the law on them. That doesn't accomplish anything. But let's remind them, that's not how you worship, okay? That's not how you worship. You don't do that with temple prostitutes. You don't involve yourself with immorality. These are not ways that you worship the Lord, all right? Now, that's, that's kind of how you do. That's how you chase around the Bible. You say, okay, do I have this right? Do I understand what's going on with this Balaam-Balak cult? Do I understand probably what they're thinking about, probably what they're doing? And uh, then you can kind of chase around Scripture and you can say, okay, yes, I think we've got that right. All right, now look back at Revelation chapter 2, verse 15. Then you have this added comment, and we're going to now comment a little bit more on the Nicolaitans because we said we would. Um, it's, it's mentioned twice here. Now we're going to get the second time. So it says, now we look at, let's back up to verse 14, and then we can kind of get the context. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of God to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit acts of immorality. So, verse 15, you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, that tells you some more about the Nicolaitans, doesn't it? And not just not that they were just like the Baal called. That's not what it's trying to say. Uh, but that Nicholas continued to teach his heresies to the church like Balaam did to the children of Israel. Okay? continuing to come up and say the same things and teach the same things. Now, we have some church history that tells us a little about, about Nicholas and some of his teachings. Uh, Clement tells us that Nicolaitans gave themselves over to pleasure and to self-indulgence, and he taught the church that that was okay. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it, today? That it's okay to indulge yourself. It's okay to pamper yourself. It's okay to, um, to give yourself to pleasure, to give yourself to overindulgence. Those things are okay. And we hear that even in the church today. We see it in the church today, that it's okay to do these types of things. Christ says you have some who like this teaching, this Balaam teaching, who Nicholas keeps bringing this up in the church and saying it's okay. It's not okay, because why? Because Christ says, I have some things against you, and it's listed in that list. Okay? This is the church that's really simply married to the world. You've got a lot of worldly things going on in there. That's really what Jesus is saying. A church that's married to the world, a worldly church, lots of worldly influence there. And people think that that's okay and somehow that's going to work out fine. And Jesus describes their worldliness all the way down through verse 15. And then in verse 16 he says, Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly and I'll make war against them. And those who are participating in these types of things with the sword of my mouth. And what is the sword of his mouth? We know what that is, don't we? That's the Word of God. That's right. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, right? It says exactly that that's what that is. The sword is the Word of God. Now, we understand it's going to be Christ himself wielding it, his own Word. And, of course, it, what does it symbolize? It's, it's a, it has a literal meaning, which is that it's the Word of his mouth, the Bible. But he's going to make war against those who are participating with the sword of his mouth. It symbolizes what? Judgment, Right? It makes clear that Christ is going to come, he's going to use his own word, and he's going to use that to bring judgment on those who are participating. And so, you just kind of read through there, you kind of see, all right, Christ is not happy with those things that are in the church. He doesn't want them there. He's going to make war on them with the sword of his mouth. Now, what kind of church is the church at Pergamum? Let's kind of sum that up, and you can find this in your notes. This is the present age for John. It's the present age for us. We're still in the church age. 
And uh, this is a church where Satan's base of operation is located. All right? A lot of satanic activity are going on there. Lots of temptation. In the past, some were martyred. And so they've been through some struggles, difficult times. This is a church with members that Christ has to fight against. How'd you like to be a church that was noted uh, with members that Christ had to fight against? A church that's married to the world. A church that has much worldly influence in it. And in all the periods of the church history, there are worldly churches. This is not unusual. This is common. And so we see this even today in churches. I'll hold right there just for a minute. There's lots of things to jot down there. There's much of that influence today where people do not come out of the world, where they cater to the world, where they accommodate the world into their church worship services and into their lifestyles. We continue to see that, where they go along with everything that's happening in society. And you have to be a church then who Christ wars against with the sword of his mouth. You definitely don't want that as your epitaph. All right, let's look at verse 17. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. It's a special food God preserves for those who are his. Now, future, of course, you will dine intimately with God. He's going to give you part of that hidden manna. We know what those who overcome are, right? We saw that definition last time. Those are those who have faith in Christ, those who come to faith. will dine intimately with God. I will give him a white stone, it says, and that is beryl. That's in the shape of an amulet given to winners of athletic events. And a little historic there that you can understand what's going on. Used to recognize them, allow them to enter and celebrate at a later party reserved for them. The idea was if an athlete was successful in some event, they would be given this certain stone. They would use that stone as the uh, entrance to a party that was later on reserved just for them, a celebration for them. It's a great biblical word picture, isn't it? And not only do you just understand that you're going to come and you have a place with Christ forever, but he just says, listen, you overcome, you get the special pass. Not everybody gets this. Only those who overcome, only those who are victorious. They get this. I'll give him the white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Isn't that great? And not just the stone, not just to get to eat with Christ, the hidden, uh, the hidden manna, but you get a customized stone with a very personal name on it. In fact, he's going to know you, and he knows you now so well that he has a name for you that no one else has ever heard. And I just that stirs me when I think about that, you know, because I don't think much of myself. I know myself pretty well. Look in my face in the mirror all the time. I know the thoughts that go on in my head. I know the things I have to battle against, as do you. I know where I have to fight using the Word of God to, to be victorious. And I just don't think I'm worth much of a great name. And, but Christ says if you're an overcomer, that uh, you're going to get to eat with Him. You're going to get a special pass to a party that just recognizes your, the things that you've done. And you're going to get a name which He only knows for you. And I think that's pretty cool. And uh, it's a great word picture, great encouragement to you to know how much the Lord loves you and that desires very much for you to, to be with him. Verse 18, look if you would. Verse 18. <clears throat> Let's look there. Verse 18. To the angel, to the church, and in Thyatira write, Son of God who has eyes like flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this. Now this is the city of Thyatira. Let's just stop right there and go through some fast facts. This is the modern-day city of Akisar. 
Let me put those up there. Lydia was from Thyatira, from Acts chapter 16. Uh, Paul uh, was one of Paul's converts. There's a chapel dedicated to her in Philippi, by the way, uh, dedicated to Lydia. It still stands today. Acts 16 talks about Lydia. She's from there. There's a very big prominence of various trade guilds, significant in Thyatira. Lots of things that happened there. Uh, association of clothiers, uh, bankers, tanners, potters, linen workers, wool merchants, slave traders, shoemakers, dyers, coppersmiths. Members of these trade guilds, uh, guilds necessarily for financial, probably and for social success as well, often involved pagan customs, involved in uh, practices such as superstitious worship, union feasts, uh, food sacrifice to pagan gods, loose sexual morality. Those types of things would go on. And so you have a little history of this city of Thyatira, a working city, if you would. Kind of reminds me, I think, of like Detroit. You know, we think about a working city. We think about people who are involved in all kinds of guilds and trades that are connected to each other. Uh, I just kind of think that way. But uh, you've got uh, this kind of city. And then verse 18, To the angel of the church of Thyatira write, uh, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, and we see who's speaking again, of course, Christ is speaking. He's specifically identified there as the Son of God. Verse 19, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. Jesus knows because he what? Because he's always watching, right? And in particular, we see here, he knows that they've grown in their deeds some since the planning of the church. They've made forward progress. He knows that, there are some, that, that their maturity is going on in the church and he makes mention of it. Verses 20 and 21, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Thyatira is a church that tolerates sin. Thyatira is a church that has someone in the church who continually leads people into sin, and they are following. Now, they, the people who are following are called what? What are their names? Called bond servants, right? So they're leading, she's leading believers into what? Error, right? Bondage, sin to sin, okay? And so this is a church that tolerates sin. In this particular church, they toler tolerated Jezebel. Now, 1 Kings, of course, you know the name. 1 Kings chapter 21, 25 and 26 talks about Jezebel, the woman, but she's a Jezebel-like woman, obviously who was seducing servants of God to commit fornication, eat things offered to idols, much like her, her namesake in 1 Kings 21. So this is a church without discernment. This is a church that's not picking up on this, right? Verse 21, so Jesus says, I've given her time to repent. I gave her time to repent. He says she does not want to repent of her immorality. Christ's gracious, long-suffering uh, for everyone, including this person, right? We see this there still. Give you time to repent, turn from your deeds. And so it kind of gives you a key. It's not, uh, uh, judgment doesn't always come, right? Discipline doesn't always come immediately on people. We'd like to see that, wouldn't we, in our own self-righteousness, in our own uh, supposed morality and, and evaluation of our own selves. We'd like to see uh, people who step off into sin to be judged more quickly than they are, but Christ is very gracious to us as well as to them. And so we see this waiting. I've waited for her to repent. I gave her time. And Christ is very long-suffering. All who commit sin, God offers a chance to repent, but it's not forever. And uh, 1 John 5, 1 lets us know that there comes a line that is crossed. At some point, uh, di uh, discipline has to come, and so it does. Behold, verse 22, I will throw her on a bed of sickness. Literally, it's called a bed of disease. 
She was given an opportunity to repent. She did not. And so she'd be given to, to disease and destruction uh, from which she would not rise. She committed sins on a bed. She would be given a, an eternal bed of torment. That's really, uh, I guess, appropriate punishment. The Lord understands how exactly to discipline. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds, verse 23, and I will kill her children with pestilence. Christ is always watching. And so we see this discipline coming. He knows what goes on in his churches. And so they're warned because they're a church that tolerates sin. Christ doesn't want them to. He wants them to return and repent. And a church that would not discipline sin, a church that would not purify its ranks. And whose job is that, beloved? You get the sense of it right there? It's ours, isn't it? It's our own job. It's yours and mine, as the Lord provides opportunity. See, it is our job to speak up, right? Scripture's full of admonition to come alongside a brother or a sister who's erring and turn them from their way, right? Which means you have to say something. <laughs> That's no fun, you know? Because uh, you would expect, you'd like to have a spiritual comment back from them, but see, they're not walking with the Lord. So very rarely do you come alongside and try to turn them from their error and get a spiritual comment back. Lots of times you get very unspiritual comments toward you, right? But it's still our job to do it. And the desire is for restoration, right? That's what we want. We want a time where people turn and repent and come back. And so we don't come at it with a self-righteous attitude. We don't come at it with a holier-than-thou attitude. We don't come at it with an idea that we stand and they've fallen, right? Because Scripture admonishes us, beware if you think you stand, lest you fall. But it's still our job to purify the ranks, isn't it? And to keep ourselves walking together in the correct direction. And Christ, of course, admonishes them to do that. So Jesus is going to discipline those who are involved in these things who are unrepentant, see. But it's our job to start that process, see. It's our job to, to, uh, to, to help people turn. It's our job to keep people on that road. We have to speak up, okay? And that's a blessing. That's a church that's pure. That's what he wants, a bride that's pure. And the reason why he's going to do that is so, and look, look down there if you would again, verse 22, verse 23, out rather. I'll kill her children with pestilence. Now, why is he going to do that? This is very interesting. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. It's always for the Lord's glory, isn't it? And the discipline that occurred in the book of Acts, remember? Ananias and Sapphira. <laughs> Glad that doesn't happen now, right? We don't give what we should, and the Lord just kills us. But it's a perfect example of what he thinks about sin. But then what, do you remember the comment right afterwards? What happened with all the churches after that happened? They feared, didn't they? Is that a bad thing? <laughs> no, that's a good thing, beloved. That's a good thing to know that Christ watches, see? It's a good thing to know that he's concerned about his church. He wants his church to walk before him in purity. And uh, so he says, he says this, Look, I'm going to discipline them, and I'm going to do that so that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I'll give to each one of you according to your deeds. A nonchalant approach to sin always increases sinfulness in the church. Did you know that? People think, well, if we discipline sin, I mean, we'll drive people away. Quite the opposite is the case. A pure church is a bright church. A pure church shines brightly. A church that tolerates sin or has a nonchalant attitude about sin always increases sinfulness inside the church, beloved, whether it's right up here or out there. We just multiply it. Christ wants a pure bride. 1 Corinthians six seventeen, a good cross-reference. Really, last two churches, we can kind of cross-reference this whole thing. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Go ahead and go to that verse, if you would, 1 Corinthians 6, 17. I think we've got it there, don't we? There we go. Flee immorality, but 
Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own? For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your what? In your body, right? Look at verse 24, Revelation 2, if you would. Start to wrap up here. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan. This is likely John substituting Satan for God, right? As Jezebel claimed to be a prophetess. Uh, she taught the deep things of God, right? Uh, not really. She thought she was, and she made everybody think that she was, but she really wasn't. And uh, from a Greek magical papyri, listen, these, these words are common. Uh, I conjure you, holy light, holy brightness, breath, and death. That's part of a worship of a pagan cult. And so she probably taught the same thing, uh, that she was teaching them the deep things of God. Uh, they really were not. John is tongue-in-cheek here. I place no other burden, no requirement, no other requirement on you, John uh, Christ says. Verse 25. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Not everyone in the church is like that, see. Not everybody is participating in this type of thing. Not everybody was drawn aside. Not everybody was participating in the sinfulness. There were some, not all. And so Christ speaks to the rest of them. Hold fast until I come. I'm not going to place any other burden on you. The things you were doing, the things I complimented you on, that you're growing, those things that are happening in the church, those are good things. Stay away from this so-called deep knowledge. It isn't deep knowledge at all. Stay away from that. Understand I want a pure church and I'm going to discipline those who are involved here. And I put no other burden on you. Hold fast until I come. Not everyone's bought into the wickedness, and Jesus places no other burden on them. Just hold fast in this behavior. Acts chapter 15, verse 28. Uh, once again, we see this uh, response to this type of uh, cultic-like behavior, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden. Same type of words, right? I'm going I'm to tell you not to do these things. No other burden. Then these essentials, verse 29, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, from blood and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you do well, farewell. And so we just kind of get the same sense, right? This was common practice. It made its way into churches all over the place. And Christ puts no other burden on these here in this church except to flee those things that he's going to discipline and hold fast to the things they're doing. What kind of church is Thyatira? Let's sum this up in your notes. It's the present age for John, of course. The present age for us, which just means there's still churches just like this. Thyatira is a church that tolerates sin. Thyatira is a church without discernment. A church that would not discipline sin. A church that wouldn't purify their ranks. A church that thought they had deep knowledge of God. And there are always churches like that that are participating in types of sin and, and pretend to be very spiritual. A big part of the church is immoral in its practice, but there are some there who are not. And they are pure. And so Christ is pleased with what they do and gives them no other requirements other than do what they've been doing and stay free from sin. Just hold right there just for a minute as you copy a few of those things down. Things that uh, perk your interest. All right. Verse 26. We'll leave that up for a minute or two so you can still copy down. Verse 26. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my father. 
And we know who the overcomer is. We understand who that is. That's those who have received Christ by faith. Uh, John gives us that direct uh, definition of that in 1 John. And there will be some authority given to Christ. These are just glimpses of your future, uh, what will happen in the millennial reign of Christ. Understand that this is part of what God will do. Um, I don't know about you. I don't feel like I should have to rule. I should be able to or should be worthy of ruling anything. How about you? Right? I don't really feel like that uh, I have what it takes to rule somebody or somebody's. Right? But part of uh, what uh, the Bible re- reveals to us is that part of your future is a ruling and a reigning with Christ. Christ ruling with all authority and you ruling under him. He who keeps my deeds as we are able to be under authority and do what he says. That's very important. And I really think that there's a one-to-one ratio here. As you are able to be under authority, as you are able to be uh, inside the church in the position where the Lord's placed you, as you're able to answer to the Lord as well and do what he says, to the extent that you're putting that to work in your life, to that extent, and I think really this is the, the, the uh, emphasis here, he who keeps my deeds, uh, do what he says, and proportion to that will be an authority. I think in proportion to the ability we're able to do that here, it directly relates. There's a continuity there with our life here and our life there. There's a resurrected body, a marvelous thing. You're going to be able to be recognized. You're going to be who you are. People will recognize who you are. The deeds that you have done in righteousness follow you. Those things the Lord holds on to. And in proportion to your submitting to authority, you have authority. So I think that's that's a great encouragement, isn't it? Uh, to be faithful, to be under authority, to uh, do what the Lord says, to be under his authority, to reign in your life, keep his deeds, keep his word, keep it dwelling in you richly. Verse 28, and I will give him, it says, Revelation 2, 28, I will give him the morning star. We've heard that expression before, haven't we? Second Peter 1, 19 tells us that when we come to faith, what? The day dawns and the morning star, remember, rises in your heart. That's an interesting illustration for us. Someday we'll get to have him in all his fullness. We come to faith, we get the morning star rising in our heart. We get the, just the, the seed, if you would, of uh, the experiences we'll get to have with Christ. But if we overcome, we submit to him, we'll get to have him in all his fullness. Revelation 2.29, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A great ending as we go through each of these churches remember and put into practice. Remember, blessed is he who hears, who reads, and who does the things written in this book. And boy, as you get into chapter 2 and chapter 3, and you realize that it's talking to churches, present-day churches still, and you hear all this instruction and you understand what's going on, it's not hard to put that into practice, is it? It's not hard to see, wow, there's some really practical things for me personally, right? And the Lord knows where you are, the Holy Spirit knows where you are in your walk, And I pray that he'll multiply his word in your heart. My prayer for for me, as I study the word, it's been kind of a new, uh, as I get into my time in the word, I've always prayed, Lord, help me understand what your word says. This is your word. You want to change me with it. And I've prayed the Lord would seal in my heart the the feelings that I get, uh, the emotional responses that I have, uh, the desires, the the commitments that I make as I read through his word. Lord, I want to do these things. I don't want to turn away from this. I don't want to be like this, or this is really how I want to be. That's my prayer for you. Seal in your heart the, the things that you feel tonight, the things you understand to be true uh, from the Word, the uh, things that you see are clear, the admonitions that He's given us. Seal those up in your heart. They become part of your life. You only live out what you believe, and this, this will be part of your belief system. All right? All right, let's be dismissed in a word of prayer. Dr. Ferguson, would you close us in prayer, sir? Let's pray.